Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of The George Sanders Show. Tying in this week with a screening at Scarecrow Video, which I think is actually happening right now as we speak, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Sean? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it might actually be over by now because we're, <laughs> we're running late. We're running a little late. Uh, Scarecrow's little screening lounge is showing uh, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, and we saw, we thought, you know, why the heck not? Um we were, we were hoping to have it coincide, you know, and it, we'd post the show in time, but that didn't happen. No. <laughs> uh, and then tying in with that, uh, the action film that it is, uh, we'll be discussing one of the most buzzed about films, uh, at least in some circles of 2015, Michael Mann's film Black Hat, which uh, came out in January, but recently um, made it onto DVD and home video viewing options so we'll be discussing that uh and then tying in with all of that uh we are picking our essential american movie because there's some lists going around with that theme and it's fourth of july coming up and all that good stuff and our person of the week we thought we had a many many you know many people to choose from tying in with the two films that we're talking about michael mann uh john woo chow yun fat Chris Hemsworth, which Sean was really excited about talking about. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I shot it down, though. But Sean did tell me he's an Australian. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, he also uh, has a brother. He two does. Of, two of them, I think. Oh, does he really? Yeah. Uh, one of them's in the Hunger Games, right? Yes. Yeah, see, I knew that. Yeah. Uh, but no, we're not going <laughs> to talk about any of those hunks. And they're all hunks. We're going to talk about the original hunk, uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> Because today is Mel Brooks's 89th birthday. Wow. Um, so I, wa- I went into Scarecrow earlier this morning, and uh, they were playing Spaceballs, and now I know why. So happy birthday, Mel. Uh, he, I can't wait to talk about Mel Brooks. Uh, yeah, so all that and more on this episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, so let's get the ball rolling and hear a little clip from Michael Mann's Black Hat. The moment you connect, you lose control. I can target anyone, anything, anywhere. They're moving the money. No fingerprints, no trace. No mercy. Criminal reactor at Chai Wan, and that's just what we know about. To catch this guy, we're gonna need a black hat hacker named Hathaway. He's a genius coder serving 15 years. If you want my assistance, I want you to commute my sentence. Have any idea how much progress you're gonna make on a strike this complex without someone like me? Zero. This isn't a negotiation. Well, I just made one. This is the code section right here. It looks incomplete. He's still writing, but what for? The guy we're working will take out a city and not think twice about it. Don't evolve 9 11 on me. Stay down! China, now Chicago. This is only the beginning. Is he political? Any terrorist declaration? No claim, no statement. Boise won. This isn't about money. 
This isn't about politics. Team, this is all just a game. A virtual world. You are never in the game. Whatever's next is right in there. Can you crack it? Isn't that why you brought me here? You get discovered, you're dead meat. Do you know what your guy did? He hacked into the NSA and defense. Bring him in. If the man. I'm gonna stop him. With a guy this dangerous, it's all about if I can get close enough fast enough. You're no longer in control. The real head is still to come. Okay, that's a clip from Michael Mann's new film, Black Hat. Uh, it's basically one long chase, uh, two hour and 15 minute chase. Uh, Chris Hemsworth plays a hacker who has been imprisoned uh, for the nefarious things that he did with his computing skills. And he gets pulled out uh, by, the, by the U.S. government in collaboration with the Chinese government to uh, track down another hacker who has been causing disruptions throughout the world. Um, and basically, it's, it's a globe-trotting kind of, you know, film full of these, you know, those Michael Mann, you know, visceral action scenes and, um, you know, beautiful night shots of, you know, boats glistening on the water and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Uh, I don't think there's, there's much more of a setup that you really need for, for this kind of film. And, and, you know, there's, this is one of those movies where, there's certain things I don't know if we should be talking about in our discussion. Um, I mean, they're kind of minor, but I don't know if we should tread lightly in terms of them because there are some things that uh, I didn't see coming that I think play better if you don't see them coming. The spoilery things. <laughs> spoilery things. Yeah. Do you do you agree? Should we should we at least like you know put on our uh, slippers when we talk about this one for parts of it? I don't know. I mean, we we don't generally speaking. I guess I guess we're we're more spoiler conscious for new things. Um, I don't know that we need to talk about like which if any characters uh, meet their demise, but right. I, I don't I don't know that there's anything else that's really secret. Right. The code has been cracked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So this film came out in January, um, and. You know, it was kind of blown up on the letterboxed sphere, the internet movie nerd sphere. Everybody was rejoicing the new Michael Mann movie uh, has arrived. You know, it's been, what, three, four? It's been several years since Public Enemies. Yeah. Right? Um, and, uh, but then the movie, you know, the wide release, um, I don't know if you want to say bombed, but it... it oh, it bombed. It bombed. Yeah. <laughs> the, the studio dumped it in January against uh, competition that it could not compete with. And it, it did very poorly, and it left very quickly. It was Taken 3, I guess. Taken 3, really? And, uh, and American Sniper. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was dumped in the graveyard that is January. Um, but now it's on DVD and people can see it, so that's good. Um, so I, you know, as we were discussing before the show, I am not one of the Michael Mann acolytes, 
you know, I'm not an aficionado. I haven't seen everything. I haven't seen. I told you beforehand. I haven't seen Heat. I was I was busy in the mid mid nineties, uh, listening to Toad the Wet Sprocket, and I <laughs> I, I couldn't get the time uh, to to go see. So there, you know, I but I have seen the more recent uh, Man films, uh, including Public Enemies and um, you know stuff like Miami Vice and stuff. So. Uh, you know, I'm coming to this from a different, I guess, angle than uh, kind of you. I I would say, yeah, you you are a, a professed Michael Mann fan. Is that safe to say? No, definitely. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I guess this this could be good. We can kind of get the the the, the perspective of you know someone that's. Um, hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid and so as somebody that's well within the cult. And I'm not saying it's a bad cult at all. I'm not. Um, but you're just more well-versed in his entire filmography. So uh, how do you feel about where Black Hat stands in terms of, uh, you know, his, his work? Uh, I think it's, it's one of his best films. Yeah. I really like it. I, uh, uh, I was one of the people who saw it in the theater. I saw it, I think, opening day there were like three other people in the audience there you go uh, that's that's my that's my idea of a perfect movie going experience yeah and 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 i loved it it was uh it was a lot like the movie's a lot like miami vice and it's it's reception by the by the public i think i think was a lot like miami vice and and like miami vice i saw it right away and loved it right away mm-hmm. and then was was uh, distressed to see it, uh, it miss its, its audience. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, Michael Mann had that string. I mean, that was that long string of just like, um, you know, well-regarded, well-respected, critically acclaimed films like 10, 15 years ago, you know, with, uh, collateral and, um, all those things. And then his last three movies, I mean, Public Enemies didn't do very well either, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it didn't do as well as I think they expected a Johnny Depp gangster movie to do. Yeah, because it's, sure. if he's not... He's he's difficult to market because he's not making proper genre films. The, 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 these are movies that look like genre films, but they're not. And then... Right, but but at one point, he was kind of he was able to, to do that and be, you know, financially, right, like critically what, respected. You know? Manhunter, Thief, Last of the Mohicans, Heat are more kind of meeting the expectations of the audience that are, that are set up by, by its marketing. Right. Um, you know, I, I get the feeling that with Miami Vice, people were expecting something f- to be funny. Yeah, they were expecting Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, or yeah. Uh, uh, Starsky and Hutch, you know, right. something to make fun of how dumb the eighties were. And what they got was something that's you know totally sincere, and the audience was flabbergasted by it. Right. Yeah, and well, and you know, I, and also you know, Jamie Fox was was in, and you know, like I, you, you could kind of make those leaps. You know, you could be like, well, Jamie Fox this is a comedian. You know, I mean. Obviously well, yeah, and done, it was also know. like the the peak of the cultural hatred of Colin Farrell for no apparent reason right, other inex- than that than that he was a star and people didn't like him, even though he'd done nothing but 
really good work in really great directors' films, like The New World or Minority Report. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it was it was kind of a confluence of, of, of I, I don't want to say missteps, but yeah, it was, the stars were not in alignment. <laughs> but, but in the, in the, in the decades since then, you know, I, I feel like, like my, my initial reaction to Miami Vice has become more accepted. Like it's, it's still not. You were ahead of the curve. You're, I was. You're and, the taste maker. And I'm not. Well, I'm not the only one. There were there were those of us who who loved Miami Vice right away, like right, right from the first time we saw it. Right. Um, and you know, initially in, in 2006, we were, you know, assumed to be joking. Like there was no possible way that movie could be good. And and as as time has gone on, it's become more accepted. Although it still is not recognized as you know the one of the great films of the century that that it is yeah uh, well, I, th- I think I think Black Hat will follow a, a similar progression do you? Um, I do well I think I think all of those people who are on board with Miami Vice now are also on board with Black Hat so I think it's starting from a better place and I think ten years from now uh these movies will be much more critically respected than they are today. I I agree with that. I I yeah, definitely. Um yeah, so I mean that's as long as they don't get forgotten. I mean that's that's my concern is that like um I don't know that like there was that huge initial push when this came out at least from the spheres that I kind of traffic in. Um, but then I haven't really been hearing much about Black Hat. Like, it, it, I didn't even realize it had come out on DVD yet. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, yeah. And so well, I've been I've been seeing people watch it as it as it's coming on video. I've been seeing people watch it and rewatch it. Like a lot of those like initial reviews that came out in January. If you if you go to Letterboxd, and uh, I was just killing time earlier and looking at my Letterboxd feed and of the people that I follow. Of course, the the reviews of it are overwhelmingly positive. Um, and there's a lot of them that have like two and three reviews of people have, have come to, to watch it again now that it's on video. Right. Meanwhile, Um, on, uh, IMDb, it's, it's sitting at a, uh, mediocre 5.4 from IMDb users and the Metacritic score is a 51. Um, yeah, well there, there are, there are many. Oh no, I'm sorry. The Metacritic score is 37. <laughs> there, there are many ways to watch a movie, and some people watch a movie and see, uh, you know, an amazing film, and some people see a guy who is uh, who has muscles who knows how to type, and assume that the movie is stupid. Right. Uh, I am not one of those latter people. But you do have lots of muscles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> were anyone to play me in a movie, this is a podcast and nobody out there knows what I look like. But if there is a human being who could play me in the movie of my life, it would be Chris Hemsworth. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Viola Davis would play me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just part of the course. Uh, but let's let's just stop talking about the reaction to the movie and actually talk about the, the film itself. What What did you think of it because you had not seen it you did not make did it not to the it. I, you I, didn't make it to the mall in january i, I didn't make it within the seven day window of catching right. this on the big screen <laughs> not my fault although to be although to be honest 
I've been trying to get somebody to go see the stupid Mad Max movie with me for like, I swear, like eight weeks now. Okay. I've, Not I've seen it twice. I well, hey, go with me sometime. Go go to the mall. <laughs> I, you can't go see a movie by yourself. Well, I can, but it, it's a long story. It's a long story. People have people have promised to see it with me, and then when I see them next, they say, "Hey, I saw Mad Max." I'm like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like, what? Just, that's what happened. My brother. Just my go brother, by yourself. Well, I will. Jeez. Jeez. Anyway, uh, I actually really like this movie uh, yeah. a lot. Um, I I. Um, I, yeah, I was kind of, you know, going in, I was like, yeah, I don't know, because I I, I do really respect and, and like uh, Miami Vice. I've seen that a couple of times, um, the direct, or the original cut, not the director's cut, which is, the, from what I've heard, the inferior version. But I've seen the theatrical cut uh, of Miami Vice, and I, and I like it a lot, um, but I, I don't like, I, I like it from a distance, I guess, kind of. There, there are moments of it in it that, I, I don't know, I, I kind of distance it from me. I didn't think Public Enemies was successful. Um, once uh, that's kind of the flip side. There, there are moments in that which I think are really strong, but on the whole, I don't think it coalesced uh, and and was satisfying end to end. Um, but I really liked this movie. I, I really did. Um, I I think, as I said at the beginning, it's got those kind of you know Michael Mann uh, tropes. Those kind of those things you would expect from a Michael Mann movie. The action is just palpable i mean it's so visceral and just like you're just thrown right into it and the cinematography in those scenes is just so in your like the it, the camera's right in your face and 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 um the action is just explosive it just you know comes out of nowhere it's it isn't pretty it's just like you know i mean it's just wham bam you know uh, a lot of surprises and talking about the spoiler type thing uh and then it's gorgeous to look at i mean like um just you know, man's use of like digital uh, film is. I I really can't think of anybody that does it as good. Like, um, there's some shots in this thing that are just stunning. Um, and then meanwhile, I think the story. Like I'm, you know, it's it's pretty. Okay, it's kind of a silly story. <laughs> um, and there are some moments in the in the story where you really have to to take the leap with the the narrative to to you know. Like when when Chris Hemsworth like figures out the grand scheme of things, it's a bit ridiculous um, the way he discovers it, but uh, or the or, or how he connects all of these dots and makes this assumption. Um, but that's okay. But I, I actually really like the plotting here, and I really like how the stakes keep being raised. Like first, the stakes are, you know, he's he he has to go back to prison if he does not, you know, uncover this hacker. Um, right. And that's a pretty that's a pretty big one, you know. But as the movie goes on, it keeps adding. Um, it kind of ups the ante, and not in like a ludicrous sort of way where it's like like crank or something where it you know it's like ever more ridiculous. It actually the stakes just genuinely ramp up as the movie goes on because you know certain relationships are strained or or uh, someone dies or you know et cetera et cetera et cetera until um, it really becomes about instead of like tracking this guy, it's like now he's on the run, you know, the main guy, you know, uh, Chris Hemsworth's on the run. Hel what's his, what's his hacker name or what's his character's name? Uh, Hathaway. Hathaway. He's on the run. Um, and, and, you know, 
everybody's descending upon him and it, i mean it's 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 good it's 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 a good movie i liked it <laughs> <laughs> are you surprised by that i'm i'm not because uh I think I think if, if anyone liked Miami Vice, then they would like this movie. I agree. I, I really, well, I, I really do think that they are, uh, they are a pair. They're they're very similar. Yeah, they're more I, similar than any than any two movies Michael Mann has made. Yeah, I, would, I mean, yeah, I think the um, yeah, there are a number of parallels between the two. Um, but I actually, and I, I'm probably in the minority on this because, you know, like everybody, like you said, everybody claims Miami Vice to be one of the best movies of the uh, millennium. But uh, I think this is more successful for, uh, start to finish. I really do. Yeah, I think, I think the, the plotting is, is, uh, is better in Miami Vice. I think uh, there's a... There's like this this awkward thing with Blackhead, and and I want to talk about like the one flaw that I see in the film, uh, and that is the fact uh, that his uh, username is Ghostman. No, that's <laughs> that's important. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's important because you know one of the the running themes in the film is is the digital to the analog, the 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 uh, the image to the the physical. He's he's not tangible, and then he is. And the progression of the movie is from from computers to actual humans. Well, the, but speaking of that, just a brief aside. Uh, Viola Davis has a line uh, about what what she say like, "How's that for tangible, Gary?" Yeah. <laughs> but or she pauses it. She's, "How's that for tangible, beat?" Gary, which I think that was great. It's a she has a really great performance um, for such a, a small part. Like she's uh, she doesn't have a lot of lines. Like there's not a lot of lines in the movie. It's it's a Michael Mann film, uh, but she is she is terrific. She's a, she really uh, is yeah uh, definitely a, a uh, supporting actress contender for this oh. year. I think. Ooh. Um, Ooh. Keep watch, everybody. Red carpet watchers. <laughs> Sean's got this, his this, eye on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she, she is an ND, she's I, an ND contender. Uh, there's, there's an awkward thing which uh, apparently uh, I learned this. Uh, a friend Matt uh, found this in an interview or something somewhere uh, that originally, in like the original uh, cut of the film, the attack on the nuclear reactor that the film opens with came later in the story there was something else in the beginning and then there was the, the soy futures attack. And then there was the attack on the nuclear reactor in China. So there were, there are three global events opposed as opposed to the two. Well, I don't, I don't know what it, how it originally started. I don't really know how it would work because the, the Chinese reactor is how they get the Chinese guy to go to America to get right. Hathaway. But you know, how, however it worked originally, they took the, the the reactor part and then they moved it to the beginning of the movie but there's still a scene there's this one scene um that doesn't need to be there at all where they're on their way to hong kong and they stop by the reactor and as they're going through the reactor they ask uh or they're as they're, as they're at the site they ask the guy in charge questions that they already know the answers to 
Like, yeah, uh, I did was there that. was there like a political demand? Has he asked for any money? Has anybody claimed responsibility for this? We already know the answer to that because that was discussed in the first you know ten minutes right. of the movie. Right. So it didn't. It doesn't need to be there, and it it's it just feels off, and it makes everything seem more artificial than it should, and it disrupts that kind of progression of the movie. Yeah, um, that that scene did feel. Um a little, I don't want to say clunky, but yeah, it, it, I, I, I had that same kind of feeling when we got to that point and I was like, why, first of all, I mean, I know why they're there. Like, I think that whole, that whole section, um, is yeah, probably the weakest moment because like, I actually really like the scene inside the reactor. I think that's mm-hmm. really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, but that, it, that scene doesn't even come then. They they stop by the reactor. They say it's too hot. We can't go inside. And then they go to Hong Kong. And exactly. then they go and then they go back to the reactor and get the the server or whatever it is. Oh, you're the hard right. Drive you're right. Out. You're right. 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 So it's like that initial trip to the reactor just yeah, no doesn't need to be there at all. Right. Uh, so yeah. But that's so. That's so. Small. Yeah. It's a, it's such a minor. I mean, that's thing. small potatoes. But yeah. uh, I mean, that's why that's why I give it the four and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> right, I understand. Uh, what What do you think of the the villain's evil scheme? Because this is this is another of the the complaints about the film is it's essentially uh, the same scheme as uh, the villain in Quantum of Solace, which is one of the very worst James Bond films. Mm. And uh, and I hate that movie. And one of the reasons is I hate the the dumb scheme from the villain. But in this movie, I'm totally fine with it it doesn't well, because bother the, me at the all. scheme has like the scheme has nothing to do with anything in in this like it i mean it, it it's a macguffin i mean there's no well it, it's, it's always a macguffin but uh the difference here i think i think this macguffin makes sense i think that the the whole point of this villain is that he's he's inhuman like he even he says that he's a gamer which yeah, is is a little you know, a little too obvious, but it's, it's the whole point. He view, he doesn't care about, you know, the human cost of anything. He is, he's playing this game, uh, where he's just trying to rack up the score. He's trying to come up with a clever scheme so he will look cool. And, uh, and, and, you know, that is contrasted to the very human relationships of the heroes. Mm-hmm. And 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 their humanity and the film's progression again from the digital to the analog. Uh, so in that sense, this silly scheme to make a lot of money, which is what his ultimate goal is, works for me. Whereas the silly scheme in Quantum of Solace is just silly. Well, see, I can't. I haven't seen Quantum of Solace, so I can't really speak right. to that. Um, it's like in in the same way that like the villain in Die Hard just is just robbing a bank right that's i don't have a problem with that either. hell no yeah like <laughs> it, it's it's an elaborate robbery scheme but he's gonna get really rich so yeah there you go why the hell not it's christmas eve yeah <laughs> you gotta go i mean if you're gonna do it on christmas eve you gotta you gotta make it worth it you know what i mean yeah so, uh yeah i didn't have any problem with that whatsoever i mean i do think i do think the villain once the because the villain the main villain he has what two scenes? We see him talking on the phone, and then we see him at the end. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he's a little bit of a letdown because he's. 
I don't know. He seems a little more ridiculous than, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, when he comes on, it reminded me of TJ Miller from Silicon Valley. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. is that, is that who's running the show here? Okay. Yeah. I got, um, I got kind of like a Harry Knowles vibe too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I mean is probably, you know, correct. Sure. I guess, you know, if you want to, if you really want to, I don't actually, I don't actually know any hackers. I don't want to speculate on their body type. I, right. I assume they look more like Harry Knowles than they look like Chris Hemsworth, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it is what it is. Um, so this movie has, uh, three, I, I guess you could say, uh, big action sequences in it. Um, and they're, they're all three of them are very different, um, mm -hmm. in terms of the way they're shot um, and you know, the, the stakes in each one, you know, some are small scale, some of, you know, some are just like hand to hand combat. Some are, uh, multiple guys with multiple machine guns firing at each other. Um, is there one in particular in this movie that, that struck you the most? Like you, you said previously, um, I don't know if it was on the show or not, but, um, you were listing the, how this is a really good year for action movies and, uh, Black Hat was one of your choices. Is there is there like a an action scene that you would point to in this that's kind of uh, raising the bar? Uh, well, I think I think the last one is yes. is is really something new. I think the other two are really good, but they're the kind of of films that are that are Michael Mann action scenes. They are they would be immediately familiar to to you if you had seen Heat, right? Uh, but or public but, enemies. Yeah, but they're you know they're also similar in 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 public enemies and, and Miami Vice, um, and I think I think they make an interesting cr contrast with with John Woo. We're, we're going to talk about it better tomorrow or later. But I think uh, the thing that that distinguishes Michael Mann from from someone like Woo and from and from the rest of his contemporaries like like Tony Scott or or Michael Bay or or whomever uh, Ridley Scott uh, is is the 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 characters in a Michael Mann shootout are so precise and, and measured in their, in their movements. Uh, you don't see uh, a Michael Mann character like jump through the air, firing two guns at once, right. you know, dozens of, dozen. dozens of bullets. What you right. see in a Michael Mann film is, is a cop pull out his gun and carefully take aim and fire one shot and, and hit a bad guy. And right. then, Take aim again, fire another shot, and hit a bad guy. And right. it's it's so it's so controlled and and precise, and and that that is Michael Mann. But uh, but that final scene is is something new, and it's it's uh, it's almost completely soundless. It's 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 visual. It's a a, a rhyme, a, a contrast to the the opening shots of computer signals. Moving through uh, computer terminals has has uh, been remarked often in in reviews of the film, um, but it ends it ends so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like the the acts of violence are are so abrupt and so without flourish, uh, they're just kind of staggering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. No, that that uh, sequence at the end really uh, struck a nerve for me too, where it just. Like, not only is it is it um, just 
one guy going in against, you know, trying to, to take the this other guy out, basically. There's not, like, a whole gang. I mean, the gang's there, but, they're you know, they're not involved. But, um... But also he's you know he's this hacker and he's and he's down to using a screwdriver. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like he's just he's 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 making a makeshift bulletproof vest out of magazines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, out of yeah, old issues of Sports Illustrated. It's like it's literally low tech. Yeah, it's like super low tech, and uh, and then to to stage it during that procession, um, you know this candlelit procession um just it, it makes it so so um what's the adjective for michael mann like it just it's so it's so uh it's so cinematic you know in in certain respects like it's 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 such a contrivance to have it happen during this beautiful kind of procession with all of these candles but then at the same time it's also so realistic because it's the, the cameras, you know, it, it isn't pretty. You know, you know what I mean. Right. The the digital gives it uh, gives it a, a sense of of realism and uh, of strangeness at the same time because it's not it the the sky looks more purple than skies do in movies, and the light feels heavier. Like there's there's more humidity in Michael Mann movies than than there are in, in film movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's got like the immediacy of digital. Then, you know, it's handheld. We're like walking behind the characters and we're going against the grain. We're bumping in and out of, of extras, but at the same time, there's like an, an ethereal other world quality to it. It's uh, yeah. Only Michael Mann does that. It's true. It is true. It's a signature style that is, uh, it's, it's, and it's, and it's a style that, um, you can't really replicate, you know, there, I mean, a lot of people ape a lot of other people, you know what I mean? But like you said, you can take one of these scenes, one of these action scenes or whatever, um, and just put that up on screen, uh, with no preface to it or whatever. And you could, you could, pointed out i mean that is michael mann and there's not anybody else that does it like that yeah. like for example john woo we're gonna talk about john woo i mean that guy's been you know aped you know eight ways from sunday you know what i mean like everybody's i mean community of all you know they've ripped that off you know what i mean like he, he's got so much yeah i don't i, I don't think anybody's can... really tried to imitate a michael mann exactly and why yeah. is that uh, because his movies get very poorly received. They don't make money. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know, Quentin Tarantino uh, rips off, uh, you know, all kinds of different movies, including flops. You well, know I, I, mean? think, I think you're going to see a, a new generation of filmmakers in, you know, the next 10, 20 years right, that, that, are... That, that are going to be consciously trying to work in the Michael Mann vein. Uh I think he's ahead of his time. I agree. Uh, what do you What do you think of the romance? Because I, I I mentioned earlier during a, a break that this was the most romantic film of the year. Do you yeah. think Do you think the the relationship with with Chris Hemsworth and and Tang Wei uh, works? I do. Um, I would say that you know once again comparing this to Miami Vice, I think. I think the Gong Li, um, Colin Farrell one, to me, that one is more 
important to that movie, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, because that movie, there's literally like a 40-minute section in the middle where the two of them just get on a speedboat and go to like an island together or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, where this is constantly moving um, and... And the relationship is so accelerated because of uh, a number of factors. But one is that, you know, he just got out of prison. Um, so he's crazy horny anyway. Um, and, you know, but no, I think it works. I think on the whole, it absolutely works. Um, See, and I think I, I think it actually works better than the one in Miami Vice. And I think this this is one area that Black Hat is, is better than Miami Vice. Interesting. Because... Because it doesn't have that 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 interlude, in, that interlude. Because it's not a relationship built out of dialogue. He yeah. he builds it out of out of images, out of, out of looks. Like uh, she she touches his arm on an airport tarmac, or he looks at the back of her neck, and and it's much more uh, evocative of a romance. It feels much more emotional than than in uh, a scene where the characters like tell each other their backstory, and that's how you know, we understand them to, to be in well, love. And, and he has a scene where they're talking here, if I remember I was correctly. Just, I was just and about and to we don't, up. we don't hear yeah. the dialogue because no, I, it's, it's it not important. Out. Yeah, yeah. It fades in and out. It's like, a, it's not a montage, but yeah, the, you hear little snippets, you hear him say like the word, my father or something like that, but right. you never get a full complete sense. I really, really, really did like that. However, the 40 minutes or whatever it is in Miami Vice, um, it, I think I just said this, but uh, that is my favorite part of Miami Vice. So I think that, that that's why I think that relationship works better is because um, I think it's the best part of that movie. And I don't, I'm not faulting this one, but I don't think that this movie hinges on that relationship as much. Um, See, I, I think it does. Like, I think, I, I, don't, I don't think we can like really spoil the ending by saying that they're they're going to like get away and end up together and kind of walk off into the distance, whereas in Miami Vice, uh, the opposite happened. Like Miami Vice is like a is like a Howard Hawks movie where where Colin Farrell is so dedicated to his job that he you know lets the woman he loves go and then goes back to work. Uh, in in Black Hat, you know they they don't have a job anymore. They don't have work. They uh, you know escape from the the world and just kind of dissolve into the crowd right, but it, but in the but in the in in the space of the movie i you know i don't care about like what happens after the credits roll with these characters like uh, with either group of characters or whatever but i'm just saying like during the uh the running time of the movie <laughs> i mean we're getting into you know semantics here so, you know the specific whatever. um i just think that i preferred uh, and it's been a while since I saw Miami Vice, so I'm kind of speaking out of turn because I don't. I it's it's all kind of impressionistic now, in my sure. head. But um, yeah, I mean they're both great. They're both yeah. great. I just uh, I just really like Gong Li. Okay. I really I really like Tong, <laughs> Tong Wei. I mean she she was great in in Lust Caution, like five five ten years ago, the the Ang Lee movie. She's really good in that, and in. Uh, uh, and and Hui's movie, which came out last year, uh, the Golden Era, uh, right? Which I which I still have sitting from my screeners for SIP, and I haven't gotten to. But you yeah, should I watch did, it. I, She's really good. I know it's just three hours long, and I haven't had a chance to do that. Yeah, but, I know, um, but yeah, but yeah. Uh, but no, I really, I actually really did enjoy Less Caution, uh, and. Uh, no, she's she's very good. I, I, you know, and Chris Hemsworth. I, you know, I've only seen him as Thor, 
and uh, I think he does a good job here. Do you think he's believable as a hacker? Uh, or do you, do you even care? <laughs> no, I don't, yeah. to be honest with you. And, like, and I don't think that this movie really cares. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that... This isn't like... Uh, you know, it's about a hacker just as a, a means to get to the, the meat and potatoes of what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't I mean, actually think... see him in front of a computer. Thank God. You know, this isn't like Sandra Bullock in the net or something like that. Like, you don't see him in front of a computer for more than, like, a minute at a time. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and, you know, most of, like, the hacking stuff he's doing isn't really hacking so much as it is, like, basic logic problems. Right, he's just sussing out. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's, he's just like, trying to, like, understand the, the opposing hacker. But I don't, you know, the getting back to the reception of this film, there's, there's something about Michael Mann that, that brings out the, the plausibles, the, uh, what Alfred Hitchcock called the, the people who care too much about the details of the plot and not about as much enough about what the plot is actually, or what the movie is actually about. Um, and Hitchcock detested those people as, as they are. Kind of like Richard Brody with his inside out thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get to that. Um, that up. (laughs) But this is one of the attacks of the plausibles on the movie is like hackers don't aren't, you know, six, three blonde Australians um, See, with, with muscles. But, you know, the, the, the backstory that, that the Hathaway character is given, it's perfectly plausible that he would, after, you know, three years in prison with well, nothing they, else they to do but that. exercise, get yeah, totally. bulked up. I mean, and, you know, he's, he's a guy who yeah, had been in prison since, you know, he was in college. He had to drop out of college and went to jail and and been in and out of jail for like a decade. I don't I don't have a problem with him looking like Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. So well, and take they, that plausible. There's literally, you know, there's a scene, there's a there's a shot of him being brought back to his cell and they show him, you know Exercising. Exercising. <laughs> I mean it's like, yeah, duh, what else are you gonna do if you're locked in a cage for, you know, twenty three hours a day or something like that? Exactly. You know? Oh yeah, I'm fine. You you read Foucault and you exercise. Yeah, well, when we were watching it just now, yeah, I was like, you know, this movie wouldn't have been bankrolled if Dom DeLuise was the main character. You know what I mean? Like, um, you you know, you need to you know, you need to play the game if you want your movie to you know get thrown into theaters uh, in for one week in January. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think. uh, I think we should move on because we're going to be here all night. Yeah. Uh, So uh, (laughs) tying in with Michael Mann with this film, uh, we're going to hear a little music right now from a band called Godhead Silo. And this is their cover of Phil Collins in the air tonight.
Okay, so we just talked about Black Hat, which, uh, as we've said, is one of my favorite films of the year so far. I'm going to be uh, doing a big uh, post on my blog with my favorites of the year so far and a bunch of other stuff. And we're going to be doing a, a Best Seattle release of the year so far coming up this week, I think, if uh, we can manage to get it done. Uh, one movie that will not be among God the top ten willing. films Sorry. of the year so far is uh, is Inside Out, which is a good movie, and it's also the subject of the next segment of the show, which is What's Mike Watching? What if I pulled a bait and switch and was like, <laughs> Mad Max, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw Inside Out, finally. Um, I had to wait because my partner in crime was... Uh, uh, out of town, and uh, we have a Pixar tradition of going to see the new Pixar movie together. So uh, I finally got around to it uh, a couple of days ago. It's very romantic, just like Chris Hemsworth and, and Tang Wei. That's right. Just like uh, Xiao Yun Fat and T Lung. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Inside Out is really good, and uh, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it going to be among your your top films of the year? It is. As a matter of fact, as as a big uh, Pixar fan, should we be expecting to hear more about it from you? You mean on that list? Yeah. Uh, wait, I actually have to write stuff on that list. I thought I just had to give. No, you no. Uh, we'll be talking about. It. We'll do an end of the year show next oh, year. Oh, oh, I don't know if it's that good. I mean, it okay. might. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's six months more to go in the year, so. Right. Um, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I don't. I don't uh, put. Inside Out up there with like uh, Ratatouille or Wally or Toy Story, you know, you know those movies. I I don't think it's that good, but um, I think it's really good. And um, I was actually nervous about not nervous, but you know, going into it, um, you know, Pixar has kind of stumbled a little lately. You know, after that, you know, the succession of of the Ratatouille, Wally up kind of thing. Um, Toy Story 3, really good. But, but you know, I didn't love Brave, um, and Cars 2 was an abomination. Um, and I actually just recently caught up with Monsters University. I avoided it because I'm kind of, I was like, I'm going to boycott all Pixar sequels. And then, you know. Uh, it's fine. I liked Monsters University. <laughs> like, I thought it was going to be awful, and I actually had a good time with it. It's, it's fine. I watched, um, I watched it on cable at my mom's house. Yeah, Most it's, of it's, it. it was it's fine. You know the best thing about it is they toned down Billy Crystal's shtick. Like the whole movie, yeah. like the plot of the movie hinges on like toning down that shtick and I'm like, "Thank you. That was really smart." But anyway, Inside Out. Um yeah, I I think it's really good and um I want to see it again and I and I think that the movie um I think it 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 has some some very you know uh specific things that it wants to wrestle with and i think it actually kind of wrestles with those things um in in interesting um ways i think it's i think it's a clever movie i think it's funny i think it's i think it's genuinely sad um and it's good and it looks i think it looks fantastic i really do i think it's one of the the best looking cgi films um ever I think it has a, a really potentially interesting premise that it doesn't explore in an interesting way. Uh, I think I think it gets a lot of things wrong about what it wants you to think that it's right about about the way that like human brains work, um, and that's not 
that's not to say that the film is implausible. Like you, you, as, as you say, you have to kind of accept the premise of the movie to go along with the story. But the story itself is basically just Toy Story. What is what is unique? What is interesting about this film is 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 this this metaphor that it creates about emotional development and and about depression and about you know what it means to grow up and to see your kids grow up and and that kind of model is not it's not that it's flawed and that it doesn't actually represent you know the psychology of human beings. It's just it's not explored with the kind of depth that it could have been. So I ended up kind of like it's it's a movie that was fun. It was funny. It looked nice. It it made me very sad at various times <laughs> because I'm a parent and it pushes buttons in parents. Uh, okay, but so, oh, but wait, I, I the more the more I think about it, the less I like it. Huh? The more I think about it, the less I like it. The more you read Richard Brody's stupid piece, the less you like it. Um, okay, do you well, think, I think, that, I think? So when you say well, it's pushing about, buttons, like, do you think that this movie, like, do you think this movie is not coming from a place of genuine honesty? Do you think, like, like Richard Brody, that this is pure manipulation on Pixar's part, and they're trying to breed a new mass of brainwashed consumers that will buy into their uh, well, syrupy concoctions? We're talking about Richard Brody's uh, uh, piece on the film in the, in the New Yorker. Which uh, which I forwarded to you, and I think I think that Brody is right about the specifics of the film while being wrong about the film in general. I think he's woefully wrong. Like I think I, I like I, I I he takes issue with all. I mean I I see it's my fault. You know before we got to the show, I was like <laughs> we can talk about Inside Out. I don't want to go into Brody's thing because it annoys me and I think it's stupid. Uh, but here we are. And I, I, I'm really not, I'm going to curb it. I'm going to curb it. But um, yeah, he can't see the forest for the trees with this fucking thing. Like the movie. No, I, I agree with is, you. I think, I think in the big picture, he's, he's wrong, but I think he has a lot. There's a lot in, in, in his, in his essay that is correct. Well, I think the, I think his, the basic, the big mistake is, is, is despite the fact that the, the movie focuses on these characters that are quote unquote emotions. It's not, it's more about a loss of innocence um, than it is about like emotional maturity or any kinds of those things. And Brody's, well, I don't want to talk about Brody, but um, yeah, I I think that the movie really does get to some, you know, I think it really does display this kind of loss of innocence in a, in a really, um, I think beautiful way, and um, and I think the, the the storytelling, which has always been Pixar's bread and butter, I think I think it's deceptively. I, mean, I think it's really complicated the way that the movie manages to kind of keep two narrative tracks going and make sure that everything is still coherent and that one uh, beat from the inner life plays out. You know, has an effect. You know, on the out, outer life of Riley and and vice versa. Um, and I, I, I don't think that like the, I don't think the metaphor is, is consistent. Like, uh, you, you say it's about a loss of innocence, but it's also about, you know, Amy Poehler trying to bring these balls up to the control room. 
and and that aspect of it doesn't fit into the allegorical reading of of what joy and sadness are about and and the little girl's depression and um, and her growing up her loss of her like childhood personality and the replacement with with a more adult you know more complex you know emotional sense of being doesn't really tie in with these lost memories that are trying to be restored. And I think it's just like a construction problem with the film. Like it's just that the allegory isn't applied all the way through to, to every aspect of the film. It's this, it's this metaphor, this, this idea that is grafted on to a standard Pixar narrative. And that, and that's, and that's really disappointing to me. Like I, I wanted you know, I, I, I wanted something, something new. And in the same way that like that up, you know, I'm kind of ambivalent on up because it's like got this great, you know, the, the great thing that, that everyone writes about that, like the opening, you know, 10 minutes. And then it's like a simple chase narrative with a talking dog. That's really funny. And, and, you know, it's fine, but it's not, you know, as as powerful and as emotional as as that opening sequence, and and Wally well, has the same problem. I think I think it works better in Wally, but you know, no, I agree with you. I mean, the the, the Pixar movies that stick the landing uh, are Ratatouille builds to its ending, and yeah. and that's why it's the best. Um, and Toy Story three does the same thing; it builds towards its ending, um, and and that's fantastic. Um, and yeah, I agree with you on up. Like I. I think that that sequence being up is i mean i i like i'm welling up thinking about it right now it's like so incredibly well done um but i think see i think with inside out I think you're you're, movie, you're you're breaking up again the the black hat is getting you i've, I've been i've been hacked yeah. um don't what was move, i saying don't move your head okay what was i just saying uh up you're welling up just thinking about it okay um, uh, but I think with, with Inside Out, I think that the movie is actually kind of the, the progression of the story of where Amy Poehler's character, Joy, uh, along with Sadness and Bing Bong, where, like, where that, I think she thinks that she can make it right by going through this kind of hero's journey that you're discussing. But as the movie goes on, we all start to realize that, no, that's not the way to solve this and that's not going to solve it. And I think that the movie actually does kind of come to a conclusion about that, that all of these kind of heroic efforts that uh, Joy is trying to accomplish in this movie are all for naught because you can't change change. You know what I mean? I think that the movie explicitly deals with that. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) So Mike is right. I mean, um, I, I think I think it. Uh, I think it's more, uh, you know, and and it's it's my perspective watching it as a parent. Um, I think it's more. I think it's more reflective of that point of view, um, of of a parent's fears for their child because because as a parent you always want your kid to be happy all the time and you never want them to be sad and there's like this imperative not to have your sad kid because if your kid is sad and depressed then they'll end up like as a junkie or a serial killer or something um which is why no parent should ever watch uh we need to talk about kevin because that movie is horrifying uh (laughs) but tilda you know tilda she's the gateway drug right uh Uh, and then, you know, so, so it's about kind of realizing that it's okay if your kid is not happy all of the time. And it's about coming to that realization as opposed to a realization that the girl herself who is, 
you know, not, you know, if anyone is supposed to be the protagonist of the film, isn't it supposed to be the girl whose emotions are all in conflict inside of her brain? Or is, you know, is sadness the hero? I don't know. Uh, but no, I think, I think it's more reflective of what parents think about kids. And uh, that's why I like the, the tagline in the film and in the end credits is the thing that I, I, I quote in the Letterboxd review, which is that uh, this film is dedicated to our children. Uh, please don't ever grow up. And that uh, seems like an incredibly like wrong-headed point of view <laughs> to have because like the, the point of the movie is that you're accepting that your kids can be emotionally complicated and then here you are hoping that they don't ever grow up. <laughs> Yeah, well, I agree that tagline uh, sits a little oddly in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is a very strange thing. Um, you know, not having children, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's weird to you know have to have a different reading on this based on whether or not you've procreated or not. But like, um, well, to every, me, everyone has a different reading on everything based on. Well, I know. I'm just saying that. Yada, yada, yada. But to making it like a have and have not kind of argument, I mean, it's just a little silly. But um, uh, yeah, to me. Um, the the things that about the movie that worked on an emotional level um, had nothing to do with it yeah. in a way you know what I mean like it was um, you know there's there's the Pixar uh, tear jerking scene which you know people can talk about Disney being manipulative or Steven Spielberg being manipulative um, I don't give a fuck if they can do it well then fucking do it and they do and and that scene got me like i mean it got me and um and more power to him like uh but what pixar does really well is it i mean i really think this this is why they're head and shoulders above the other kind of you know the dreamworks or what have you is that they um they can they know how to tell a story they know the mechanics of a story and yeah sometimes the mechanics you can kind of see the template um like you said it's it's toy story all over again and yeah i can i can see the argument um but when you do it well, it's okay to me, and I, I think it's a good movie. I like it. All right. Well, speaking of uh, emotional manipulation, <laughs> let's move on to our person of the week, and uh, that's Mr. Mel Brooks. Yes. Uh, happy birthday, Mel, as we said at the, at the beginning of the show. Uh, Mel Brooks has been in show business uh, since the dawn of time, basically. Well, he's the 2,000-year-old man, so... Yeah. Basically, the dawn of time, right? Right around the time that Jesus came Or at least around. the dawn of television, which is right. pretty close. That's pretty close. Uh, Mel Brooks, yeah, he's had his finger in a lot of different pots. And he's an interesting... I mean, I think he's had a really interesting career um, beyond just what we all know him from. And we all know him from the spoof movies, um, you know, the, your uh, Spaceballs, your... Robin Hood and in tights, uh, and and also the good ones, the Blazing Saddles, <laughs> Blazing Saddles, uh, Young Frankenstein, right? Uh, well, hey, I didn't go into like Dracula Dead and loving it and stuff, Ooh. so yeah, it's one of uh, the worst movies I've ever seen in a theater. Wow, you saw it? I never saw it. Yeah, paid a dollar. <laughs> Wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, um, but also he's done really interesting things. Um, I mean, he produced uh, the Elephant Man, like he. He saw Racerhead and was like, hey, this David Lynch guy is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's awesome. Like, He, he married Anne Bancroft, which shows that Anne he has Bancroft. taste. Uh, you know why she said she married him? 
because he makes her laugh. And that's just really sweet. Yeah, I mean, that would have to be it, wouldn't it? (laughs) Hey, he's adorable. (laughs) Um, No, I'm actually, you know, but in terms of his filmography, um, and I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen Dracula Dead and Loving It or um, Life Stinks or, you know, some of the other ones. Um, I'm pretty hot and cold on the works of Mel Brooks as a director. Um, I think I think Blazing Saddles is probably the only really good movie he ever directed. I, I agree. I agree. I haven't seen the f- original producers. Um, it's okay. I, I've heard it's pretty good. Um, and like uh, the producers, Young Frankenstein, they're they're okay. Uh, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Men in Tights are movies that made me laugh when I was young. Um, yeah, Spaceballs, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. Spaceballs does not hold up, at least for me. Um, I, I revisit it like once every five, ten years, being like, I'm going to watch Spaceballs again. And then it's like, it's a slog. I, I was I was ten when Spaceballs came out, and, and I thought it was the funniest movie ever made. And uh, I think by the time I was 12, I thought it was not that funny. Right, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. But, Bla- but Blazing Saddles is amazing. Blazing Saddles is really, really good. Yeah. Um, uh, start to finish. And, you know, I think that's where he tapped in. Like, he, he had he had such a great collection of people working on that movie. You know, like um, Richard Pryor writing, you know, some of the screenplay and um, the casting, Cleavon Little and, you know, Gene Wilder. And I mean, yeah, it's it's great. And and I love the ending of it too, you know, yeah. where it runs rampant at the movie um, production studio. Anyway, um, so yeah, happy birthday, Mel! I don't know what else there's to say about. Him. Oh, he 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 also did Curb Your Enthusiasm. One of the, he did the best season of Curb. Yeah, too. one one of the best seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. With uh, probably the best season finale of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So good. Yeah, I mean, just so good. I did like the Seinfeld reunion season uh, uh, finale too. Time. That was a good uh, finale, but I did not see the ending to season four coming, like the yeah. twist. Yeah. And God, that was great. Oh, it was so good. Um, so Mel Brooks, you know, he seems like a really good guy. Um, you know, he still hangs out with Carl Reiner like every day. They like get like um, to go food and like sit in Carl Reiner's living room and watch Jeopardy and stuff. Yeah, we'll we'll probably be doing that when we're ninety. <laughs> I I can only hope. Um, All right, so happy so, birthday, Mel. Happy birthday, Mel. Uh, uh, a for, true American. For the essential this week, uh, I want uh, I want you to pick the uh, your essential American movie, and what what I mean by that is like the most American movie, like the film that defines America. Yeah, this one was really easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is I it mean, Blazing there's... Saddles? <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was Mel Brooks's silent movie, uh, <laughs> which I think just sums it up. No, um, I mean there was one thing that just popped in my head right away. It's uh, although I mean that being said, you, you, I could list a zillion movies that kind of encapsulate America and and what it means to be an American. But um, but I'm gonna go with a movie who uh, which is uh, working title was The American. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Citizen Kane, uh, Orson Welles' debut film, which is yeah, a film not, that's been... I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, I know. People, <laughs> It's been talked to death, I know. But come on, like, what better portrait of, like, 
a country and like aspirations and ideals that are corrupted by, you know, greed and outside for, I mean, Citizen Kane, you could, you could make a case for Citizen Kane and, uh, basically any week we do an essential, you couldn't pretty much make a case for Citizen Kane as a choice <laughs> for it. Um, and it's one of those movies. I think we've talked about this too, is, uh, maybe around the time that Vertigo unseated it as the best movie of all time. Uh, quote unquote, but um, but I think Citizen Kane gets a bad rap, or or you know I know people that avoid Citizen Kane because of its uh, stature, and um, which I think is very sad because I think that movie uh, holds up, and 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 I think you can read Citizen Kane in a zillion different ways, but I really think the reading of it as, as kind of a chronicle of America, um, and American ideals and stuff is, is one of the, the more enticing and, uh, thought provoking ones. And so I'm going with citizen Kane by Orson Welles. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a great pick. I think, I think that that, that idea of, of kind of reflecting America is more explicit in Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, well, yeah, maybe, but it right. but it works similarly of of using a, a a very flawed protagonist as a stand-in for a kind of uh, of corruption of the American dream, right? And he's so idealistic in the beginning, you know. Yeah. There's a certain man. Anyway, yeah, I won't re- I won't do the whole thing. But uh, what is your pick for the uh, essential American film? Is it American movie? No, I haven't actually seen that. Uh, for me, it, it has to be a John Ford film. Uh, John Ford is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, he's, it, it's an obvious thing to say, but he, he is, for me, like the, the filmmaker who has the most to say about America, and he's the one who's like best explained America to me. To where I'm have been like able to to come to an understanding with with the way that I you know feel about my country, both good and bad. And the one the one film to me that seems to kind of encapsulate that the most is is Ford Apache. When and that's my pick. You know I I appreciate all the listeners that we have. You know the the dozen or so that are out there. Um, but in, sometimes I, I wonder, like, wouldn't this show be better if you and I didn't have the same opinions on things? Because, like, because, no, seriously, I was, I was, you know, you gave me this idea of the essential American films, you know, and I, you know, I was on the bus and, and, and Citizen Kane was the first thing that came to my mind. But then after that, I spent like a good 20 minutes just kind of reflecting on John Ford movies in my head. I was like, well, My Darling Clementine would be a great, you know, like, I just kept doing that. And so... Um, it's like Citizen Kane. Uh, that is uh, an obvious pick, but mm-hmm. it's also the perfect pick. So I totally understand. Yeah, I think I think uh, no no Ford movie uh, wrestles so explicitly with America's past. Uh, like his whole career is just kind of reconciling his ideals to the actual facts of American history and in the. Uh, in the ways that that we as a nation have failed to live up to those ideas, and and Ford Apache is explicitly about that, as it's a about a, a Custer type figure, but it, it's also about it's about other things too. It's about the the integration of, of various cultural traditions and and immigrations, and it's about the kind of reverence for 
for tradition and for the past while at the same time understanding its its flaws and yeah i mean i i, I love ford Pat. I, it's not one of the most acclaimed john ford films like it's it's respected but you don't see it mentioned as much as the searchers or my darling clementine or, or stagecoach um but i think it should be like i think it's a a, a severely underrated ford film yeah, we I ran that at the library um, a couple months ago uh, during our Western series, and uh, yeah, it was you know I had to pick a Ford, mm-hmm. I had to right. You I mean you can't run a Western series without picking a Ford? Um, and yeah, I mean I agree. Like it it should be in that conversation. Like it it should be put up there. But but there are so many Ford movies that should though. You know, yeah. like Wagon Master. Yeah, that movie should be. Like if anybody else directed Wagon Master, it would be people would be talking about it all the time. I think you know what I mean. But it's but because it's Ford and he's got so many others. Well, I think if if anybody else directed Wagon Master, nobody would remember it. Like it's the well, it's I, the I mean, John Ford that makes it memorable. I, I'm just saying, like if sure, if, sure, sure. If I know you what scrubbed you're off his name and put someone else's name on there, yeah. but it was the same movie. Yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 Ford through and through. But um, but yeah, you know, anyway. I hear you. Ford Apache, absolutely. Um, John Ford rules. Um, have we ta- have we done a John Ford on the show? I don't think we have. See, we should do a John Ford movie. Yeah, I've done we- uh, a two John Ford Day Shot Pictures episodes. We have we have a third that we're going to do someday. But uh, I don't think we've ever talked about him on the show. We should do We Willy Winky and, and something. <laughs> I, I, we Willy Winky is awesome. Hey, right? I'm down for Shirley Temple. Yeah. Um, all, all right. Shirley Temple, star of Ford Apache. That's right. Mm-hmm. It all comes together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so great. Now I want to just watch a bunch of John Ford movies. Damn it. Yeah. And I also want to rewatch Citizen Kane. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but a movie that I uh, probably won't be rewatching too soon, considering I watched it like 48 hours ago. Oh, wait, hey, never... wait, wait. What? I got a better transition here for you. Oh, okay. Uh, so the the second movie we're going to talk about is uh, is a movie that Dave Kerr once called the Citizen Kane of Hong Kong films. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you know, I totally planned that. Yeah. That whole whole setup. I was actually going to go with uh, Biodome as my American film, but then I right. um, then I thought, you know what? What did Dave Kerr think about? Uh, the next film we're going to discuss the better tomorrow so uh let's hear a clip uh that we won't understand from a better
给我说，我说，我不做大佬好耐了，睇你自己似乜嘢？做衰而家死俾人闹，做好人嗰阵，连行两步都俾人跟踪啊！俾条生路佢行得唔得？黑白戒指边个害死噶？你做咩要逼我接受佢啫？Okay, so I've been saying for the last couple of years, ever since I I, I rewatched A Better Tomorrow, and then uh, got uh, went、uh, whole hog into watching Hong Kong films, that、uh, that this movie is、uh, among the the handful of most influential films of the last thirty years.、Uh, it came out in nineteen eighty six, and it it basically set the template for the Hong Kong action film as it was to. Become the the most important form of that film for the next、uh, you know ten years until all of the people who made it went to Hollywood and the Hong Kong style kind of became the dominant Hollywood style. And I think that that pretty much every Hong Kong action film,、uh, and by extension every Hollywood action film ever since A Better Tomorrow, has in some way been. A response to this film,、uh, I think it's it's that big and it's that important, and I really love it a lot.、Um, I'm gonna、uh, briefly touch on the plot because I think we'll we'll get into it later. It's、uh, Chow Yun Fat and T Lung play uh, 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 enforcers for the mob for a triad. It's a counterfeiting ring. They go to Taiwan. Uh, as as part of an operation,、uh, uh, T Lung gets betrayed and is captured by the Taiwanese police,、uh, and spends the next three years in prison.、Uh, Chow Yun Fat takes his revenge, but in the bloody shootout, he ends up permanently crippled. We cut to three years later, and the guy that betrayed them is now the head of the gang. Chow Yun Fat is a bum, and T Lung is trying to go straight after after his time in prison. Uh, complicating things is the fact that T Lung's younger brother, played by Leslie Chung, is a cop whose career is inhibited by the fact that his brother is a notorious crook. And so the rest of the film will be these、uh, these various bonds and how they are in conflict.、Uh, Chow Yun Fat wants T to rejoin the gang so they can regain their former, you know, degree of coolness and glory. Uh, the head of the gang wants T to join him, or alternately wants to kill him because he knows too much. And Leslie Chung wants T dead also because he hates him because he's a crook.、Uh, and so it's the the rival codes of of family versus like the criminal brotherhood that、uh, are warring over the soul of of T Lung, and it all ends in a a a glorious shootout where lots of people die. <laughs> 
So what what did you think of this movie? I think it's fantastic. I really, uh, really responded to this movie. And, you know, once again, you know, I'm coming from this, from uh, a land of ignorance where I tend to, I have a timeshare. Where you live. <laughs> I have a timeshare in a land of ignorance. Um, you know, I've only seen uh, a heart. I've only seen Hard Boiled. That's the only other John Woo film that I've seen. And I saw it several years ago. And I, I while I appreciated it, I didn't um, love it. I didn't, uh, you know, I maybe because it's been built up so much by everybody, like Hard Boiled is the best action movie of all time, and all these things. And and also, I'm like. I, my predilection is not, I'm not a big action fan. I'm not super well versed in action. Um, anyway, long story short, I, I, while I appreciated, uh, hard boiled, I, I did not embrace it like the rest of the world did. Uh, that's not the case here. I, I don't know what's different. Maybe it's just the, the ton of movies I've watched in the, in the three or four years since, and I've gotten kind of more well versed in this kind of stuff. Or if it's because I think the story, I don't really remember Hard Boiled too well, but uh, I love the story in this thing. You know, the, the action is kind of uh, icing on the cake. It's really good. But um, all those ties and all of those things, um, I think, just really work to propel the story along. And, um, and this thing has got style up the wazoo. I mean, which is, I know, it's the John Woo thing. But um, it, God, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's, I mean... <laughs> It's a beautiful film, and uh, and the best thing about this movie, I think Chow Yun Fat's performance in this movie might be one of the greatest performances in cinema history. Like I really do. Yeah, uh, before before this movie came out, uh, John Woo had been directing since the early seventies, kind of off and on. He worked with Shaw Brothers uh, for a while. Uh, he did like some some swordplay films. He did he did a lot of comedies. Uh, at like the Cinema Studies studio, but he had never really kind of stood out from the crowd. He'd been successful, but there was there was never a John Woo movie, and in the way that we know a John Woo movie now. But and this was the first the first time he did that, and it was um, uh, it was also uh, Choi Hark's first time producing a film. He had also been at the Cinema City studio and Wu was, was basically like really depressed and he was drinking a lot and he and, and Choi Hark would, would hang around and Wu would be like, oh, what we want to do was make gangster movies. And, and so they got together and they made this film and Wu wrote it and it's based on uh, a 1967 film called Story of a Discharged Prisoner by Patrick Lung Kong, which uh, I wanted to watch before we did this, but I'm actually like 45 minutes into it. I kept getting interrupted. Um, uh, so be yeah, honest, be honest, you're watching it as we're talking. Oh, I, I wish. Uh, <laughs> but it, from what I've seen, it, this is very different. Like this is this is John Woo all the way. Like there there is nobody else who makes movies like this. Nobody ever made a movie like this before and nobody nobody can do it in the same way that he can. And it's it's weird to see it if you've seen any of his earlier films because this um like Last Hurrah for Chivalry is a, is a really good swordplay film and it's got like some thematic similarities to Wu's later stuff, later stuff, but but stylistically this is this is a whole new creation it's just the the slow motion the the wall-to-wall -wall music like there's 
you know, long stretches of this film where there's no real dialogue or scenes. There's just like a musical theme connecting these like shots of characters as they are in anguish. And it's, it's really beautiful and really moving and really uh, melodramatic in like both the, the good and bad sense of the term. Uh, but uh, uh, Chow Yun-fat was in a, a similar situation to, to Wu. He had been around forever. He was a soap opera star. He had made some other movies, uh, a couple and 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 Wee movies, which are really good. Um, but he had never really broken out. And then he makes this one, and he is suddenly just a, a superstar. Uh, the the kids in in Hong Kong, despite the fact that it's ridiculously humid and hot there. Uh, all started wearing black trench coats, like Chiang Fat's character does in this film. Uh, they they bought so many pairs of the Alain Delon sunglasses that that Chiang wears in the movie that uh, Delon wrote Chow a thank you note <laughs> for making him rich on sunglasses. Like it is, it's an iconic performance. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see like it's palpable. Like you can see, like speaking of um, John Ford, it's like uh, John Wayne and Stagecoach. Yeah. You know, that first shot of John Wayne and Stagecoach, you're just like, who the hell is this dude? And what's so great about Cheyenne Fat in this movie is uh, he's the third star or whatever. Like he's he's not the main character. He's he's a side character who has a lot of screen time, but he's not. Um, as integral to the plot as the other two um, yeah, brothers. T. Long is the biggest name in the film. Uh, Leslie Chung had had been around kind of like like Chai and Fat also, uh, but had not really broken through as an actor yet either. Uh, he was, I think, at this time he was even more famous as a as a pop singer than than as an actor. Um, and, yeah, and and uh, but Chai and Fat he gets. Um, it's, gets, such, it's such a great part. <laughs> well, he gets so many opportunities to do so many different things. Like he, he, he plays the cool guy. Um, but he also has these couple of scenes of, of genuine sadness and emotion that you don't normally get from that kind of character, um, where it's all in his eyes and his face. And he, he, you know, he, he kind of breaks down when he's talking about having guns put, you know, to his head and stuff. Um, yeah, and how, he, he's so he's so expressive, an actor with the, like his eyes and and his mouth, like the way that he'll he'll crinkle, like you you like see all of the emotions that he has at once in like these these facial contortions that are unlike you know anything that that American actors are trained to do. And what he reminded me most, you know, I brought up John Wayne, but um, uh, it kind of reminded me of Robert De Niro in Mean Streets. Yeah, you know where it's it's that kind of kinetic you know that kind of electricity like when he's on screen you can't look away he's i mean and and he's he's charismatic he's uh vulnerable he's badass i mean you know when he goes you know the scene where he gets crippled i mean that is like the coolest revenge scene of all time he's like hiding guns and plants and he's just like fuck it kicks down the door just like blows like 15 guys away and gets shot in the leg and he's like grabs another gun and he's like boom and then he just shoots the guy like six times in the face yeah <laughs> like i mean i want to wear a trench coat now yeah i just uh at the 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 film festival they played they played rebel without a cause and uh 
the performance reminds me of James Dean and in the kind of emotionality of it. Like Dean uh, is like remembered as as a method actor, so we get like method kind of things like like your Al Pacino or De Niro, but he's really emotive on screen. Like he he's not mumbly like Marlon Brando. Like Dean is really expressive in his face, and he's he's not afraid to 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 cry and show you know you know feminine emotions on screen. And Chow Yun Fat, I think, is the same kind of actor. Yeah, which we didn't see at all in any of his American films, which right. is why it was it was so uh, it was so tragic to see what happened to to Chow when he came to the U.S. Because he's he's such a great actor. He's so he's so emotive. He's so charming. He's funny. He's like uh, uh, when uh, my my friends and I first started watching Hong Kong movies. We we watched Better Tomorrow, Hard Boiled the Killer. Uh, my friend uh, 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 compared him to to Cary Grant in the in his presence on screen and just the way he just dominates everything and is so charismatic. And then you see him in his American films. And he is—he's uh, taciturn. He has hardly any lines. He doesn't get to to show emotions at all. Like even even like his best performance in an American film is like uh, uh, Anne and the King, where he's playing the humorless king. And it's just—it's it's using like one tenth of his abilities. Ah, uh, just throw him in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. <sighs> <laughs> You know, even even like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think is a really good movie. He's he's forced to be like the emotionally reserved character, right? And it's a good performance as that. It's just not a, a better tomorrow gives us all of Chow Yun Fat, right? It doesn't tap it. Yeah, it doesn't tap into the the wealth of uh, talent that he has. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. He's he's phenomenal. Like I. If everything else in this movie was, you know, pedestrian, it would still be worth, you know, seeking out just because of that performance. But luckily, you know, everybody else is is really, really good. And I I mean that, you know, in front of and behind the camera, you know, um, I I just love how and I and I mentioned this in my review. uh, I I, it's like Star Trek with the red shirts. In this movie, anytime someone's gonna is wearing white, they are gonna get shot because guess why? Because blood looks really good bleeding out of a white shirt. It's you know like and th- and this movie does it like every scene. It's so great. It's you can you can pinpoint it and and but that's fine because uh, because white, it all works. White white also in in Chinese cultures is traditionally the color of death. Well, it's also looking cool with blood. Yeah. That's why this is a yeah, helpful fact for, for you, new kids out there. This is why you, uh, you don't wear white at a Chinese wedding. They wear red. Unless you want it to end up like the November rain video. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but you'll see that a lot in, in like Kung Fu movies and in Chang Chi movies. Uh, whenever you know somebody is like uh, the, the villain or is like obsessed with death or something, they'll be wearing white. Or in like a Dragon Gate Inn, uh, you know the the hero is is uh, dressed in white. Or I guess come drink with me. The the ultimate villain is is all in white, and his face is really pale. But uh, yeah, white just, equals death. Just wind Sean up and let him go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, 
so so you talked about a little bit about uh Chow Yun Fat's career in the States, but how do you feel about uh John Woo's uh time uh across the pond? You know, he's he's since gone back and he did Red Cliff and he's got the new one coming out. But you know, he he did a number of high profile uh gigs as a director in the States, including stuff like Face Off. Um how do you feel about his his work here? Do you feel like he was neutered like Chow Yun Fat? Do you think those movies are? Uh... I, I think he probably fared better than anyone else who went over from from Hong Kong to Hollywood. In he didn't have to work with Dennis Rodman. So. Uh, that movie is really good. <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, I, I really like uh, Choi Hark's two uh, uh, Jean Claude Van Damme movies uh, more than than John Woo's Jean Claude Van Damme movie. Uh, I haven't seen some of his uh, his later American films like Wind Talkers or uh, or Paycheck, um, but but Face Off I think everyone agrees is is a really great movie even if it is kind of recycling a lot of uh, of earlier John Woo themes, um, uh, and you have like the two biggest hams of the '90s starring in it, so how could it not be good? Um, I don't know I I. Uh, I am anxious to revisit his American films because a lot of stuff like I haven't seen Broken Arrow or Face Off since they came out, so I I don't I don't really know. I think uh, I think Redcliffe is really underrated. Uh, that's the the big historical epic he made in two thousand nine, I think, after he went back to to Hong Kong. I think that's a, a really really great movie. Um, well, do you think that the? I mean, because it got kind of butchered over here. Um, well, yeah. Uh, don't don't listen to the wine scenes. That's, that's a, a running theme on on the show. Get get the get the get the big that... like four hour international cut, which is widely available on 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 Blu Ray. It's easy to to watch. I think it might actually be on like movie or something right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's very long, and his current movie is also very long. Like there was there was the the crossing, which is about like a a train wreck or a train wreck, a, a boat sinking in uh, like the 1930s. Uh, it's also split into two features and the first one came out last fall and the second one's supposed to come out uh, next month. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen the first one yet. So yeah. But yeah, don't obviously don't see the, the butchered cut of the movie. Right. <laughs> see, see the long one. So, uh, so the uh, better tomorrow, killer and hard boiled, kind of get lumped into like kind of a loose trilogy, so to speak, um, by fans of of Wu and of the genre. Um, which do you think is the best? I don't know. Boom! <laughs> I broke Sean. That's uh, that's really hard to say. Like uh, hard boiled is my favorite. Uh, I think it is. I guess that was my question. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's the best action movie ever, but they're all, all three of them are so good. Uh, I like, I like Tony Lung and, yeah. and Chai and fat together more than, than T Lung and, and Chai and fat or more than, than Danny Lee and Chai and fat in, in the killer. Uh, and Anthony Wong, I think, uh, is, is the better villain of uh of those three movies but the 
there's so much that is good about all three of them. Like it's, I can't, I can't take one over the other. I will tell you this, that, that, uh, a better tomorrow is much better than a better tomorrow two. Which, Isn't there a third one? Uh, well, that depends on how you look at it. Uh, the, Oh boy. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, after the, the big success of a better tomorrow, they like immediately went to, said we have to make a sequel. Uh, and so, so, uh, Choi Hark and, and Chai and Fat threw together this sequel. The, the problem though was that Chai and Fat's character dies in a better tomorrow. And so what they did is they invented a new character who was the first film's twin brother. <laughs> and he's living in New York in Chinatown as a chef. And so they have to go and get him and bring him back and, and perpetrate like some gang violence or something. And it's all kind of ridiculous and it's a little silly. And, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's not, it's not as serious as the first film. Uh, but there's a lot of really good stuff in it, even though it's it's kind of tonally it's all over the place. Like they had a really hard time editing it, and there's a variety of stories that go around about it. Uh, one says that uh, uh, Wu took half the film, and and Choi took half the film, and they both cut it separately and then put it together because they had to get it down under two hours. Uh, another version I've heard says that. Uh, the cinema city just took the completed film and gave it to like 10 different editors and had them each cut a reel without talking to each other. And then they just put that together and that was the movie. Nice. And that's kind of what it feels like at times. Uh, and then after that, uh, uh, Wu wanted to make a, a prequel, which would be set in, in Vietnam and be like a war movie. And we'd see how, how like Chow and T met because there's the story that that chow tells this uh when he gets all emotional about having like the gun pointed at his head um is set in in indochina and so they would go back and and kind of dramatize the events that led up to that one anecdote that he tells uh choi thought that was a great idea so he went off and made uh the a third movie all of his own without Wu involved at all and he made it into a Choi Hark film, and that's a Better Tomorrow Three, which has Chow Yun Fat and and Anita Mui, and it's uh, uh, Chow's character basically learning how to use a gun from this really awesome woman, which is uh, a very Choi Hark thing to do, and not at all anything that John Woo would ever do, because women play almost no role in John Woo's films. Yes. Uh, so after that, Woo went and made his Vietnam movie which is not specifically related to the Better Tomorrow things, although it's basically the same characters, only set in Vietnam. And it doesn't have Chow Fat, but it does have Tony Lung. And uh, Simon Yam plays like a variation on Rambo, which is pretty awesome. So they're both really great movies. And it's uh, they're interesting to compare, to see how these two directors two great directors both took basically the same idea for a story and made totally different movies out of it. Right. So, yeah, I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. That was, that was very enlightening. And now I'm interested in seeing all those except for a better tomorrow too. Yeah. I, so. I, I feel bad. I could talk about this movie 
for hours and hours and it's getting really late and you've hardly said anything. So No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sweating like a pig up here, but uh, that's, no, that's, that's part of the course. I, I, knew, uh, I think I had my say in the information. So. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that was all, that was all broken up. You didn't get that at all. Oh, curses. Um, no, I think it's a fantastic movie and I, and I do want to see more John Woo stuff. Um, and, and I do want to revisit uh, Hard Boiled because there are certain elements of that movie that have stuck with me, you know, the tracking shot and all that kind of stuff. But um, I do want to see these and, um, uh, and yeah, I've never seen Face Off. So there's that too. Mid nineties, Mike, Mike was not on the planet. So that, all right. there, there you go. Well, um, well the, the next thing you have to do, and I want you to do this before we do our next show. Oh dear God. I'm going to check up on you. I, you need to watch The Killer. Uh, okay, because it is it is essential viewing, and uh, it is essential listening. And the theme song from The Killer is what I am going to make you listen to right now, uh, assuming that you ever actually listen to the show, which we all know you don't. Never um, happens. <laughs> and that is uh, it is by Sally Yeh, who uh, was the star of Choi Hark's Shanghai Blues, and is also the female lead in The Killer. And this is her singing a song. Thank you, Sally. That was beautiful, and I can't wait to see that film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next time on the show, uh, it's summer, and we're going to go to Sweden. 
because what the hell? There's a new Roy Anderson film, uh, A Pigeon Sat on a Bench Reflecting Upon Its Existence. What's the title of that thing? Something like that. I got. I think uh, I got it, right? A Pigeon Sat on a Branch. Oh, Branch. Reflecting Perfect. on Its Existence. It opens at the uh, the Northwest Film Forum here in Seattle uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and so we'll be talking about uh, Anderson's earlier film, Songs from the Second Floor, and uh, tying that in with uh, a heavyweight that uh, we haven't talked about on the show before, Ingmar Bergman and Summer Interlude. Um, I know because, Sean's very excited. Because it's summer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you are... So this is a weird thing. Uh, I think I mentioned this on the last episode as my rep pick. Or maybe I didn't. We haven't done a rep pick in a while, have we? Because we had the couple special we have, episodes. We have, yeah, we haven't done a real show in quite a okay. while. Okay. Well... So I mentioned earlier on this show that I've run some movies at the library at the branch that I work at, which is across the street from Scarecrow. Come in and say hi. If you go to Scarecrow, say hi to Mike. Um, the University Branch Library in Seattle. And uh, we're about to start a new series, uh, just a mini series uh, called Americans Abroad. And it's, uh, you know, it's summertime and people are going on voyages and stuff. But if you can't get out of town, you go to the library and see other people go abroad. So we're going to run Casablanca. We're kind of going to cheat and do Roman Holiday, but Gregory Peck's character is an American, so that kind of counts. And we're going to run an American Paris. But coincidentally, at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, which I mentioned before, is a beautiful movie palace. I think they stole my idea because <laughs> I was looking for rep stuff. And this already happened. Roman Holiday happened uh, last week. But July 4th weekend, they're doing an American in Paris, um, July 4th through the 7th, uh, along with Three Coins in the Fountain, which is also about an American uh, abroad. And so in, in Rome. Uh, so I think that somehow they got on my wavelength and ripped me off. But that's okay because uh, an American in Paris is amazing and you should see it, it whether or not you're in Palo Alto, California. Or you're in Seattle, Washington. So uh, the showing at the library will be July something. <laughs> I'm so prepared. Uh, July 13th, I think. Uh, Monday, July 13th. And then the show in Palo Alto will be July 4th through 7th. So that's my rep pick. What about you, Sean? Uh, at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, starting on July 3rd, is a 20-film John Ford series. Oh, my God. Called The Essential John Ford. And it is, of course, Does a small... Does it have Wagon Master? Uh, let me see. It has Wagon Master on Sunday, July 12th. Then it is essential. All of the movies are on film, of Huzzah. course. Uh, but coming up on, on the 4th of July, uh, this coming Saturday, is one of his, his least known and uh, very best films, uh, Pilgrimage which we actually talked about in uh, one of the John Ford They Shot Pictures episodes that we did. Uh, and uh, playing right after that is Judge Priest, which is another very underrated film, and it is a very uh, uh, terrific way to spend Independence Day. Watching a movie about a, a woman who forces her son to go to war, and then he dies and she feels bad. And then a movie about a priest in the South uh, hanging out with Step and Fetch It. That sounds awesome. It's if, it's pretty great. But there's get... there's a bunch of other great stuff. Uh, Fort Apache is playing July 26th. Uh, the Searchers, of course, is playing uh, Sergeant Rutledge, Magambo, Stagecoach, The Sun Shines Bright, which is, uh, yeah, on July 3rd is Young Mr. Lincoln. A lot of great stuff. 
go. That sounds. If you haven't seen these movies, if you haven't seen them in a theater or on a screen, you you need to do that. You do. You really do. And then you need to tell us about it. And how can you tell us about it? By going to Twitter and hitting us up at Show. Um, or you can send us an email at the George Sanders show at gmail.com. Um, and we're, you know, I haven't updated the calendar in forever in a day, but, uh, we're working on a calendar through the end of summer of, of what we're going to talk about on this stupid show. And I guarantee you within a week's time of this posting, the calendar on the George Sanders show.blogspot.com will be updated through the end of summer up until we leave for the Vancouver international film festival. So you can get all of your information there. Um, and last but not least, we have that other website, seattlescreenscene.com, where we will be listing our top 10 uh, films of the first half of 2015 that were released in Seattle list um, soon. Yeah, and also maybe we will write about movies sometimes. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still in SIF fatigue. Yeah, as, as I, I meant to write like like 200 words on A Better Tomorrow this week because I knew we were doing the podcast on it. And like an hour later, I had written a thousand words and, and needed to stop. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on A Better Tomorrow. Yeah, you is, don't say. Yeah. So if you're looking for more, <laughs> if you're looking for more than like the 45 minutes that you just got of Sean, yeah. there's more on SeattleScreenScene.com. Uh, and true. then today um, we're, we're going to put George in the cellar uh this round and we're gonna close out we couldn't we couldn't talk about michael mann and uh action in the 80s um without thinking about miami vice and when we think of miami what do we think of sean we think of gloria stefan and the miami sound machine that's right so we're gonna take it out uh the rhythm is gonna get you my friend (laughs) we'll see we'll see you next time on the george sanders show podcast.
Here's wait, how's that for tangible, Jerry? <laughs> I gotta find out who what the guy's name is, but yeah, I no, think I think Jerry. I think Jerry sounds yeah. right. Okay, all right, fucking, uh, yeah, fucking Jerry, fucking Jerry, loser. All right. <laughs>